And here we go. Good evening, Crypt Keepers, and welcome to another riveting episode of Cryptique. I'm joined, as always, by a man who walks like an Egyptian, just like the Bengals told him back in 1986. Ryan, what's going on? <laughs> Not a whole lot, man. That's, uh, that's a dance move that I haven't seen in quite a while. <laughs> It was a great song. I mean, a perfect one-hit wonder, right? Like, uh-huh. if they came out with that now, they'd be canceled, of course. But there are, yeah, there are a few songs that I think are perfect, perfect mm-hmm. songs, and they're not the, probably the ones that you would think. It's like Stacy's mom, yeah, is probably one. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, oops, I did it again. <laughs> Like, there are a couple of these old pop songs that we, I think at a point, or at least with Britney Spears and, like, NSYNC and Backstreet Boys, that whole era, mm-hmm. we started making fun of. But, I mean, there are some of these songs where there there's no fat on those songs. <laughs> Every part of it is well thought out, well done. And now, now we're in a time where you just, like, mumble into a microphone with some, you know, bass behind you. And that's... Some auto-tuner. Yeah. Seal came on, and it's like, why does Seal sound so odd to me? And I realized it's because he can actually sing. Like, we're so used to people being able to hit all these notes as precisely as he does, but they do it through auto-tune, and with auto-tune, it's just a little too rigid, a little too mechanical. Yeah. There's no richness in the voice. Yeah, Yeah, you're not hearing the tone of it or anything you don't have any like characteristics to the voice like i mean steely dan are notorious for having been perfectionist in the studio you know mm-hmm. re-recording over and over mm-hmm. i mean and queen was supposed to be the same way yeah but there are still things about their voices that they can't change and there, there's still some quality to that that's recognizable and helps make the song what it is even though it's not perfectly trimmed up like a computer would do and it's yeah i don't know something we've lost i guess i I have a feeling that in the future there will be a market for you know there will be a market for like scripts and books written entirely by humans Hmm. with no um no help from an ai no assistance no passages no rewrites whatever Mm mm-hmm and I think we'll have the same thing for music. Anyway, a lot of that spawned from me walking like an Egyptian. What do you That's know? right. All right, well, <laughs> tell them what they need to know. <laughs> oh, well, they need to know that uh, Tame Impala is one of the greatest electronic bands of all time. Or is that not what we're talking about? That's not what we're talking about. Oh, okay. Um, oh, they probably want to know what they should do well if you guys want to share the show with somebody you think will like it that would really help us out so would a rating or a comment on your podcast platform and if you want to get a hold of us let us know what you think let us know if you want to do another meetup here in the st louis area or if you want us to travel to japan and mispronounce everything for long periods of time yeah. You can make these suggestions at crypticpodcast at gmail.com. And also tell us what you think your like perfect song is. It doesn't have to be a great song. It just has to be perfect. No no fat. Every bit of that song needs to be there. <laughs> there we go. And as usual, check out all of our socials. They'll be in the show notes and our merch over at crypticpodcaststore.com. And you can now buy us a coffee. 
that would really help out because we do have to pay for subscriptions to Zencaster, Podbean, uh, you know, different tools that we Hosting use. services and tools, yeah. So that would be extremely helpful. Um, let me uh, read you a couple emails here. So Angel or Angel, I'm not sure how they pronounce their name, but uh, they write that they love the Mexican folklore stories like El Cucuy because it reminds them of stories their parents told the family, probably trying to scare them and keep them in check, but still fun. And then we got one from Annabelle. Not sure if that's her real name or she's, you know... Trying to freak us out. Yeah, channeling <laughs> the, the uh, doll. But she wants us to cover the demon in the movie Insidious and the true story of the Black Phone movie. And she also suggested that the movie Smile would be another good one to cover. Um, I'm not sure that any of those are based on true stories, true stories but um, keep an eye out. We do have an episode we're going to drop one day here about the uh, backstories of all the ghosts from the movie 13 Ghosts. And that's all fan fiction stuff, so it's a little bit different, but I think you'll really like it. So, that was a good movie, too. That was one of the first horror movies I remember just genu- like really enjoying and not... Not really being too, like, it was before they made them really suspenseful. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I just remember that being a really fun horror movie to watch with friends. That's I think that's the best setting. People who don't like horror movies, it's because you're watching them wrong. Yeah. You need to have some drinks and watch them with your friends. They're way more fun that way. <laughs> so, uh, if you want a really good trick to play on your significant other you wake up before their alarm goes off you put some pillows in the bed you know where your body would be and then you tie yourself up and like put a gag in your mouth and be sitting on a chair when she wakes up and you just motion with your head that there's someone else in the bed oh my god yeah i saw that That's on horrifying criminal minds yesterday i thought that's a great prank wow <laughs> it wasn't maybe, a prank but maybe i've treated criminal minds too harshly because i kind of gave up on that show a long time ago yeah well we need to get to what we're talking about tonight i guess so yeah uh, yeah but if you guys know the true story of insidious or a true story of the black phone uh or the movie smile send us in the stories that you have but if you haven't seen Insidious, that needs to go to the top of your list. It, I do not scare, period. But this movie gave me waking nightmares. Like, oh. it is so good. And there's a paranormal aspect to it. You know, a pretty strong one. But it doesn't have to be paranormal either. These are all things that were done by humans to humans. So... In any case, let's jump off the uh, movie trail here. And uh, what are we talking about tonight? The Curse of the Pharaohs, also known as the Mummy's Curse, is a belief that claims anyone who disturbs the mummy of an ancient Egyptian, particularly a pharaoh, will face misfortune, illness, or death. This curse does not distinguish between thieves and archaeologists. Some would say archaeologists are thieves. I was just about to say, I'm not sure that those 
kinds of people make a distinction between themselves either. Exactly. In the mid-20th century, some authors and documentaries suggested that the curse could be explained scientifically, attributing it to factors like bacteria or radiation. Because, yeah, you open up. I mean, I open up a Tupperware that, that I forgot in the back of the fridge for two months, and I'm glad I don't die from what I smell. Scared, so if you scared. open up a tomb after a couple thousand years, and I have read, you know, about some of the horrific smells and things that they'll find in these places. That makes sense. But the origins of these tales and their evolution in European cultures, the transition from magical to scientific explanations, and their transformation from condemning grave robbers to entertaining horror audiences and films indicate that Egyptian curses are primarily a cultural phenomenon rather than a scientific reality. So if you didn't catch that, originally cautionary tale condemning grave robbers now more of an entertainment thing yeah but occasional instances of genuine ancient curses have been discovered inside or on the facade of tombs such as the mastaba of kantika akeki from the sixth dynasty at sakara and I'm not even trying those names again. These curses appear to be aimed at Ka priests, urging them to safeguard the tomb meticulously and maintain its ritual purity, rather than serving as a warning to potential robbers. Stories about curses date back to the 19th century, but their prevalence increased after Howard Carter's excavation of Tutankhamun's tomb, which is probably where we know most of our curse lore from. And before... You guys send us an email saying it's not Tutankhamun, it's Tutankhamun. Yet we know, but everybody refers to it as Tutankhamun, so that's how we're going to refer yeah. to it. And contrary to popular belief, no curse was found inscribed in the Pharaoh's tomb. In Tutankhamun's tomb. But yeah. there are instances of curses being written on the walls. What I don't understand is they've uncovered all these tombs that have already been broken into by grave robbers. And this was something that, you know, happened. We don't know when all of them happened, but we have to presume that some of them happened, you know, fairly quickly after these uh, pharaohs were, you know, put to rest. And it's like, really? You built a fucking pyramid and you can't have like, 10 armed guards stand outside the door 24 hours a day. You know what I mean? It's just so weird. Uh -huh. It doesn't make sense to me. It's like if, if you have something that you can spend what in those days would have been probably equal to billions or maybe even trillions of dollars building all these elaborate tombs and stuff, but you can't have someone stand out there and just guard them. Honestly, I think it's probably because the new rulers didn't really care too much about the old ones. Yeah. Maybe they just weren't worried about them. Like, yeah, they're already gone. They kind of build their own tombs and all that. So I guess that's just like, screw it. They built a tomb. It's probably fine. It's probably fine. <laughs> that's good. All right, let's talk about some of the curses. So curses relating to tombs are extremely rare, possibly because the idea of such desecration was unthinkable and even dangerous to record. They most frequently occur in private tombs of the Old Kingdom era. 
The tomb of Anktifi, uh, the 9th to 10th dynasty, contains the warning, quote, Any ruler who shall do evil or wickedness to this coffin, may Hemen, who was a local deity, uh, not accept any goods he offers, and may his heir not inherit. So basically, they're saying not accept any goods he offers. I guess that means that they're saying uh, if he makes an like if this person robs the grave and makes a like a sacrifice or something like that to Hemin, that he will not accept it, and that uh, whoever has robbed this grave, his children or whoever, uh, will not will not get the the items or the artifacts. Is that what you're getting? Yeah, out of this? yeah, yeah. That's what I'm getting. The tomb of Kantika Aikeki from the 6th dynasty contains an inscription. As for all men who shall enter my tomb, impure, there will be judgment. An end shall be made for him. I shall seize his neck like a bird. I shall cast the fear of myself into him. And that's more of a, I'm going to haunt the shit out of you if you yeah. take my stuff. It's more of a threat than a curse exactly curses from periods following the old kingdom era are infrequent but tend to be more severe often invoking the wrath of deities like thoth or the vengeance of sekhmet zahi hawas provides an example of such a curse uh, we will talk more about zahi hawas but he's basically accepted as the world's foremost authority on egyptology and he is basically in control of all the artifacts, all the pyramids, all the archaeologists, everything has to go through him. He has a view of 99.9% that his view is that the pyramids and the, you know, the statues and all this stuff were done by human means, by human Egyptians with no help from any outside sources. And he believes that they were, you know, these giant blocks were pulled by people on sleds and stuff. And that's not where I stand, but, you know, I, I just wanted to give you a little bit of background on where he stands. So he's, he read a curse that said, quote, Cursed are those who disturb the peace of a pharaoh. Those who dare to break the seal of this tomb shall suffer fatal illness that no physician can diagnose. End quote. We'll talk modern accounts after a quick break. Welcome back. Tell us about some modern accounts. Hieroglyphs remained undeciphered until the early 19th century. Consequently, reports of curses before this time can be attributed to perceived bad luck associated with handling mummies and other artifacts from tombs. And people used to handle mummies in some pretty weird ways. I'm sure you've seen like or read accounts of like mummy unwrapping parties and stuff like that in Europe back in the day. And they would also sell counterfeit mummies. Yeah. Oh yeah. To stupid travelers. You know, they would they would just you know, oh, your your aunt died. Great, let's mummify her in a real cheap way and sell her to some stupid European. Right, and not only did they 
sell real artifacts that they got, but they they made basically forgeries and would sell those. I do think it's important here, and I don't know if we'll get into it later, but uh, one of the things that happened with uh, Tutankhamun is he had these uh, like brooches or uh, emblems, you know, that are made of gold and, you know, jade and precious metals and all this. And during the mummification process, they used resin and and probably some sap, maybe some other stuff. So all these, he was wrapped in 13 layers of linen and each layer had its own, you know, I don't, I don't want to call it a brooch, but it's not like a medallion for a necklace. It's, it's almost just like a, a piece of art that was sealed in with each layer with this resin. So uh, Carter, who we'll get into here in just a minute, he wanted to retrieve these. So his way of doing it was to cut Tutankhamun into pieces, break him apart, and break these things out. So we're not talking necessarily about, oh, I'm I'm going to study the art here. I'm going to study the history. We're going to do an autopsy and maybe see what killed them. No, they chopped him up. And that's a lot different to me than, you know, just doing research. So. Yeah. It's not a respectful thing. Yeah. And they didn't, they didn't have to do it. They just wanted these items. And that seems like, man, if you're going to incur the wrath of a curse, that's a good way to do it. (laughs) yep all right all right so an account from 1699 documented by louis penichet i want to say tells of a polish traveler who purchased two mummies in alexandria and transported them on a sea journey during the voyage the traveler experienced disturbing visions of two specters and the stormy seas persisted until the mummies were thrown overboard zahi hawass a noted archaeologist which some of you will probably be familiar with if you're into this kind of stuff, recounted an incident from his youth when he was excavating at Kamabu Billo, a Greco-Roman site. On the day he transported several artifacts from the site, his cousin passed away. Strikingly, his uncle also died on the first anniversary of that day, and on the third anniversary, his aunt succumbed. Later, during his excavations at the tombs of the builders of the pyramids at Giza, he encountered what seemed to be a curse. Quote, All people who enter this tomb, who will make evil against this tomb and destroy it, may the crocodile be against them in water, and snakes against them on land. May the hippopotamus be against them in water, and the scorpion on land. End quote. Despite his lack of superstition, Hawash chose not to disturb certain mummies. However, he became involved in the removal of two child mummies from Bahiria Oasis to a museum. After this, he experienced haunting dreams involving the children. So this is some good horror movie stuff here. You you disturb some mummies and the mummies show up in your dreams. They showed up on the ship and now two child mummy ghosts showing up in your dreams. And this is also coming from someone who doesn't believe in this stuff. Yeah. He's very much a man of science, but is still yeah. like, oh, well, maybe some of this is real. I better just, uh, I'll just reunite them and see what happens. I don't want to lose any more family members. 
These visions only ceased when the mummy of the children's father was reunited with them in the museum. This led Hawass to the conclusion that mummies should not be publicly displayed, although he considered it a lesser evil compared to allowing the general public access to the tombs. Additionally, Hawass documented an incident involving a sick young boy who had a deep fascination with ancient Egypt. The boy experienced a miracle cure at the Egyptian museum when he gazed into the eyes of the mummy of King Amos I. The concept of a mummy coming back to life, a pivotal aspect of many mummy curse narratives, originated in The Mummy, or a tale of the 22nd century, an early work that blended science fiction and horror. This story was penned by Jane C. Ludden and anonymously published in 1827, because back then, as we know, women didn't get read as much, or they often used a male pen name. Dominic Montserrat, a scholar, credited Louisa May Alcott as the first to employ a fully developed mummy curse plot in her 1869 tale, Lost in a Pyramid or The Mummy's Curse. Man, the titles back then. Honestly, I think titles back then were better. A lot. Because I was, I was at a thrift shop with Kim. She was looking for clothes to be part of her Halloween costume. And I'm just looking through the books. Like, okay, there's got to be something here interesting. And so many of them are like one word titles. It's like breath or like orange. <laughs> it's, I have no idea what this is. Mm-hmm. But they were so, the, the titles were so much more uh, helpful back in the day. <laughs> exactly. Probably why I tend to buy older books when I go to the bookstores too. <laughs> it could be. I mean, I think they more focus on trying to be cryptic now. And they're like, oh, uh, yeah, you need to. Just trust us. It's a good story. Buy this book. Yeah. Well, anyway, this piece of mummy fiction previously overlooked was rediscovered by Montserrat in the late 1990s. Nevertheless, two stories unearthed by researchers S.J. Wolf, Robert Singerman, and Jasmine Day, The Mummy's Soul, which was uh, anonymous author on that from 1862, and after 3,000 years, another title, and that was uh, written by Jane G. Austen in 1868, share similar themes. In these narratives, a female mummy exacts magical revenge on her male violator. Jasmine Day contends that the contemporary European notion of curses stems from an analogy between tomb desecration and rape suggesting that early curse fiction could be seen as proto-feminist narratives crafted by women. And I, I mean, that makes sense to me. We wouldn't just go into somebody's house when they died and just start stealing all their shit. Right. Mm-hmm. Like if well, you out your neighbor died, you're not going to be like, Oh, look, even though I know you've talked about your neighbor having a lot of uh, artifacts and stuff, but yeah. it's not like, you know, you saw an ambulance pull up and take her away and you just snuck in the back door and you're like, oh, I got to get this and this and this. It is a violation. And, you know, I I am pro figuring things out, to put it redneckish, mm-hmm. but I, I am against just taking dead bodies. And people will make the make the claim well oh it's just their body you know this was all superstition we know that these gods don't so what that doesn't mean that doesn't give you the right to just go in and chop them up and steal all the shit off their body you know what i mean it's it's yeah it is desecration 
So the, the analogy makes sense to me. Sure. And they took it as a, as an example to maybe massage this idea in that, you know, this is what you do when you're, you know, degrading a woman and, and obviously sexual assault and rape cannot be tolerated, but back then they they couldn't really just come out and say that so they kind of saw it as an opportunity to maybe kind of massage this idea into the public and change things a little bit which i think is ingenious and fantastic so kudos to them notably both the anonymous and austin stories predate alcott's work raising the intriguing possibility that even earlier quote lost mummy curse prototypes might exist, waiting to be rediscovered. The notion of a curse gained widespread attention following the deaths of several members of Howard Carter's team and other notable visitors to the tomb shortly after its opening. In 1922, Carter's team uncovered the tomb of Tutankhamun, marking the beginning of the modern era of Egyptology. Renowned Egyptologist James Henry Breasted collaborated with Carter shortly after the initial opening of Tutankhamun's tomb. Breasted recounted an incident where Carter sent a messenger to his house. As the messenger approached, he heard a faint, almost human cry. Upon arrival, he found a cobra inside a birdcage, which was the symbol of the Egyptian monarchy. Carter's canary had died in the cobra's mouth, fueling local rumors of a curse. What do you think about that? Just totally random or could be related? I mean, probably random, but also very thematically appropriate for a curse, especially the cobra <laughs> part. Yeah. But I mean, again, if it's the kind of animal who was their symbol, there's probably quite a few of them around. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, if it's the kind of animal that's endemic to where you're at, it's, yeah, of course you're going to see them, but... I don't know. I mean, I do buy into the curse thing, especially for King Tut. Mm-hmm. People really piss people off calling him Tut. <laughs> um, there's just so there's so much to that one. There's so much that's been. I mean, since I was a kid, I've been hearing stories about it. You know, just all the things that happened to these people over the next couple of years. And there's some stuff that I found out yesterday that I added that is really, really weird. But what gets me is canaries are small birds, right? They're not big at all. And that being the case, the bars on a canary cage would have to be fairly close together. And I'm not quite sure, you know, I mean, I guess it could have been like a baby cobra. That was never verified or, or whatever. But if, I mean, cobras are big snakes even just you know not even the king cobra but you know they're very stocky and sturdy and i know they can flatten their ribs out so maybe it could flatten the you know the hood out and get its head in there but i don't know that it could just take its whole body through these tiny bars so that was something i couldn't find any more info on but it's something that kind of stuck out to me like uh, that's I don't know, like if it was a parrot cage or a macaw cage, maybe the bars wouldn't be, you know, an inch and a half apart. But when you have Uh a canary, it can sneak out through these little, you know, these uh, openings if they're 
you know, two or three inches apart, big enough for a snake to get into, the canary could get out too. So I don't know. Just a thought. Arthur Weigall, a former inspector general of antiquities to the Egyptian government, interpreted this event as a sign of the royal cobra, similar to the one worn on the king's head, entering Carter's house on the very day the king's tomb was being opened. The New York Times reported this incident on December 22, 1922. Now, getting into the deaths. The first among the deaths was that of Lord Carnarvon, the financial backer of the excavation. Carnarvon was bitten by a mosquito, and he accidentally cut the bite while shaving, leading to an infection and blood poisoning. And the thought of cutting a mosquito bite open with a razor blade sends chills up my spine. I know that if it happened to us today, we would, you know, put some Neosporin on a Band-Aid and tape it on there and we'd probably be fine, assuming that the the blade that cut the bite was at least somewhat sterile. But I don't know. It's just really eerie to me to think of something like that. But so yeah. apparently the lights allegedly went out in Cairo at the exact moment of his death, which sounds super creepy. But there's like rolling blackouts and power loss in Cairo all the time. So they would go out a couple times a day. Um, but, you know, if you want to read into it, read into it. Two weeks before his death, Marie Corelli penned an imaginative letter published in the New York World magazine. In it, she quoted an obscure book claiming that, quote, dire punishment would follow any intrusion into a sealed tomb. This letter sparked a media frenzy, leading to reports of a curse found in the king's tomb. The superstitious Benito Mussolini, who had once received an Egyptian mummy as a gift, promptly ordered its removal from the Palazzo Shigi, or Chigi, or Shigi, or Chai Guy. <laughs> you gotta not. cover all the bases. That's right. And there's not even any weird accent marks or anything. So, Lord Carnarvon's death, occurring six weeks after the opening of Tutankhamun's tomb, fueled numerous cursed stories in the press. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, as you know, is the creator of Sherlock Holmes, was also a spiritualist, and he speculated that Carnarvon's death was caused by elementals conjured by Tutankhamun's priests to protect the royal tomb. Doyle's suggestion further intensified media interest in the curse. And to me, it's really interesting that Sherlock Holmes is kind of the epitome of older scientific detective work. You know, he found a scientific answer for everything. But his author that created him and created all these stories about him is like, "Eh, you know, no, I think it was uh, fairies and (laughs) they killed him. It's just a weird dichotomy for for that but yeah in any case tell us some more arthur weigel reported that six weeks before before carnarvon's demise he had observed the earl laughing and joking as he entered the king's tomb weigel reportedly remarked to a nearby reporter hv morton i give him six weeks to live the first autopsy conducted on tutankhamun's body by dr perry revealed a healed lesion on the left cheek 
However, since Carnarvon had been buried six months earlier, it was impossible to determine if the location of the wound on the king corresponded with the fatal mosquito bite on Carnarvon. After conducting a study of documents and scholarly sources, the Lancet concluded, the Lancet being the paper, concluded that it was unlikely Lord Carnarvon's death had any connection to Tutankhamun's tomb. This finding refuted an alternative theory suggesting exposure to toxic fungi, mycotoxins, might have contributed to his demise. The report highlighted that Lord Carnarvon was just one of many individuals who entered the tomb on multiple occasions and none of the others were affected. Could have been because he was laughing. You gotta be somber and serious, man. It could have been, too, because, you know, there's a difference between you know, somebody that you hire off the street that's trying to feed their family. That's like, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll dig, you know, I'll dig whatever you need. I'll dig. Cause I got to feed my kids and somebody who financially backed the entire quote unquote rape of all these tombs. Mm-hmm. Right. Because Carnarvon's the one that backed everything. It was all his money that was going into this. So it's a little different than, you know, maybe a, a guy that they hired off the street to come and, you know, carry stuff for him. Just a thought. Yeah. I'm trying to figure out how to say the next bit. The cause of Carnarvon's death was stated as pneumonia supervening on facial erysipelas. Essentially, in modern language, it's a, a streptococcal infection of the skin and underlying soft tissue. So, yeah. And those can be serious. Absolutely. They're not treated. Because a lot of the time when you have something like that, you might think that it's like a pulled muscle or something. Mm-hmm. And if you try to treat it with heat, whew, that, that makes it a lot worse. That's exactly the wrong that. thing to do. Yeah. Pneumonia was considered one of several complications resulting from the increasingly invasive infection, eventually leading to multi-organ failure. So that's the last part of the uh, the diagnosis here. According to The Lancet, the Earl had a history of frequent and severe lung infections, making him vulnerable to such illnesses. Kind of the funny thing is that when like super rich people in England, lords, earls, whatever, um, people of great means went to their doctor and said, hey, I'm having trouble with, you know, lung infections or pneumonia or anything like that. They're like, well, it's cold and rainy here. I'm writing you to go spend two weeks in Egypt because it's hot and dry and it'll help you. And then that's when he kind of fell in love with this whole thing is when he was, you know, on vacation per se to Egypt to help his, his lung problems. So interesting. Yeah. Yeah, That's also why like back in the early uh, 20th century, you'd have certain hospitals or treatment centers that were located for their climate because you didn't really have climate control. So you'd have certain areas where you'd go, you know, that would be good for tuberculosis or whatever, because the quality of the air was different or it was less humid or whatever else. Stuff like that. And we see people moving to the desert when they just have allergies that are beyond control so it's still being done today for sure yep the report suggested that his immune system already weakened was unable to cope with the infection ultimately leading to his demise 
1925, anthropologist Henry Field, accompanied by Breasted, visited the tomb and noted Carter's kindness and amiability. Field also recounted an incident involving a paperweight given to Carter's friend, Sir Bruce Ingram. The paperweight was made from a mummified hand, its wrist adorned with a scarab bracelet inscribed with the words, Cursed be he who moves my body. To him shall come fire, water, and pestilence. After yeah. receiving this gift... Yeah, that's a great gift, right? Like, hey, yeah. here's a dead hand for you with a curse on it. Mm-hmm. But hey, now your papers won't blow away. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. After receiving the gift, Ingram's house experienced a fire, and later after it was rebuilt, it was struck by a flood. Howard Carter held a completely skeptical view regarding curses, dismissing them as Tommy Rot, and emphasizing that the sentiment of the Egyptologist is not one of fear, but of respect and awe, entirely opposed to foolish superstitions. In May of 1926, he noted in his diary that he had seen a jackal, similar to Anubis, the guardian of the dead, for the first time in over 35 years working in the desert. However, he did not attribute the sighting to supernatural causes. Skeptics have pointed out that many individuals who visited the tomb or were involved in its discovery lived long and healthy lives. A study revealed that out of the 58 people present when the tomb and sarcophagus were open, only eight passed away within a dozen years. Now, I, I like these proportions and I like the statistics. Okay. My, I was talking with my mom not all that long ago about whether or not I should stay in Illinois mm-hmm. or move back to Missouri or maybe go somewhere else. I haven't lived in Missouri in 22 years. But my mom pointed out, she's like, well, you know, four out of the last 10 Illinois governors have gone to jail. Yeah. Like, that's not a great track record. But at the same time, it made me think, like, well, at least they put them in jail. Yeah, they figured it out. How many other governors and politicians deserved it but didn't go? I would say (laughs) 99.9%. So maybe Illinois is better than most because at least they eventually root. Once they get to the very top, they root them out. The rest, including Howard Carter himself, who succumbed to lymphoma in 1939 at the age of 64, lived longer lives. Among the last survivors were Lady Evelyn Herbert, Lord Carnivon's daughter, who entered the tomb shortly after its discovery in November of 1922 and lived for an additional 57 years, passing away in 1980. Archaeologist J. O. Kinneman also lived for 39 years after the event, passing away in 1961. But we will talk specific scientific speculations after a quick break. Welcome back, Crypt Keepers. There's been suggestions that the toxic spores of the fungus Aspergillus flavus We have played a role in the deaths following a 1973 tomb opening in Poland and could potentially have contributed to some of the deaths allegedly related to Tutankhamun, including those of Lord Carnivon, George J. Gould, and Arthur Mace. However, the connection has been disputed, at least in Carnivon's case. So we'll go over some of these deaths now. Uh, The tomb was opened on November 29th, 1922. George Herbert, 5th Earl of Carnarvon, the financial backer of the excavation, 
and present at the tomb's opening, passed away on April 5th, 1923, after an infected mosquito bite. So that's what, about four months, five months, right in there? Uh, how about four months and seven days? Uh, <laughs> George J. Gould I, a visitor to the tomb, died on May 16, 1923 in the French Riviera, succumbing to a fever he developed after his visit. A.C. Mace, a member of Carter's excavation team, died in April 1928 due to pleurisy and pneumonia in his final years. Captain the Honorable Richard Bethel, Carter's secretary, died on November 15, 1929, found dead in bed in a Mayfair club, suspected of being smothered. Hmm. Howard Carter, who we've referred to a lot, who opened the tomb on February 16, 1923, lived for well over 16 years after the event, passing away on March 2, 1939. Despite this, some still attributed his death to the curse. So this is where it gets interesting. I'm still, uh, I have to admit, I'm still disappointed. About? Flava Flav has seven children, and none of them are named Aspergillus. Oh, that would be the best. Aspergillus Flav? Flavus, <laughs> Flavus babies. I heard he has like 10 kids with 14 different women. Yeah, I was about to say, I'm sure there's got to be more than this that he maybe just doesn't know about. <laughs> yeah. In 1995, Hodgkin survivor Cheryl Munson visited the pyramids and touched one of the paintings in the pyramid, despite being told not to touch anything. Soon after, she died of a lung infection from Aspergillus flavus spores. So that is 1995. So it's pretty good medical treatment in 95. And, you know, they knew a lot more than they knew in the 1920s. And, I mean, I have to take this at face value. That's what they found. They tested and that's the cause of death. But guess what happens when you're in a hot, moist tomb for 3,000 years, but no herbivore or anything that can eat them? They just flourished. So they were everywhere. So is, could that be part of the curse? I mean, it could be. You could look at it mm. uh, uh, you know, different ways. Yeah could be something they set up the curse was man-made more than supernatural yeah so in another story a couple in i believe it was pennsylvania uh, they owned a small statue from ancient egypt and they were kind of concerned about this curse you know that it, that they'd heard about and they visited a penn state professor and egyptologist named david silverman and they brought the artifact and they wanted to know if it was cursed. And, you know, Silverman being a man of science, like, you know, a lot of people involved in this case said no. Is this statue cursed? And he's like, if I answer that, do you promise to get out of my office right now? <laughs> so they brought this to Penn State and this professor and Egyptologist said no which he you know, obviously believed. It's not like he was giving him false information. But within two months, this man, David Silverman, this professor, got a call from police to be an expert witness. 
And, you know, of course, he's like, well, sure. What, what's it about? And they told him that the man and woman who came to see if the artifact was cursed, the man beat his wife to death with the statue and said it was because of the curse. So is it part of the curse? Is it a, I mean, they both went. So, you know, obviously she probably believed it to a certain extent too. I know if I, you know, told my wife, Hey, let's go see if this is haunted. She'd be like, Oh, you just tell me, I don't want to go. You go figure it yeah. out. But, or like, I don't need to know. <laughs> I'm good. I'm good with the mystery. Right. So interestingly, uh, Lady Carnivon also died from an infected mosquito bite. And Lord Westbury, who was Lord Carnivon's father, committed suicide by jumping out of a window after blaming his son's death on the curse of the pharaohs. Oh. So there's, those are things that I had to kind of dig for a little bit. You're not going to find that stuff on Egyptology websites or in Wikipedia or, or something like that. That's something you have to dig a little bit for. But I thought that, you know, those were things that were very interesting because, yeah, people died shortly after they opened the tomb, but there's no, it, it doesn't say uh, you'll be cursed for three years or, you know, this curse will last for a million years or, or whatever. Oh. So, you know, there's no timeline given. So these definitely, in my mind, even if it's not the actual curse, if someone believes it, that's strong enough. Right. Yeah. Giving no timeline means that anything that happens to them can be attributed to it in the future. And, and it could be stuff that they did on purpose. Hmm. Like you said, the spores and stuff like that, they might've realized, Hey, this would be a great environment for this stuff to grow that we know is a problem. Let's make sure it's set up this way when we seal this thing up. Could be. Then we know whoever dies like this in the next couple of years probably broke into this tomb. Like we'll have found and punished our tomb robbers. It's a great point. And, you know, we see like with ant poison, they don't kill the ants immediately. They let them take the right. poison back to the... To the nest, the colony. Mm-hmm. And it kills them all. So if these things are going out and they have these spores these are microscopic spores it's not like something you can be like oh that one's covered in uh flavus you know it's yeah. it's something that you uh you can't see so you wouldn't know if something's clean of that or not i mean i would suspect that if i got an ancient egyptian artifact i would try and do something to remove the spores but you know it is what it is Final thoughts after a quick break. Welcome back, Crypt Keepers. So, curse or no curse? I say curse. Mm -hmm. Is that it? <laughs> I mean, I don't know if I have too many qualifiers. It seems... I mean, the curse was obviously they're written out to try to scare people away from doing anything, mm -hmm. but they may have also intentionally set up almost like a biological weapon, a booby trap. Yeah. I mean, and I definitely believe in, you know, intention and 
all that mm-hmm. sort of thing. And if you believe you're cursed, even if there is no real supernatural cause, you're probably going to make things happen to yourself. Yeah. You're probably going to have some misfortune and attribute it to that. You know, yeah. if, the, if the guy that we were talking about earlier, um, whose house caught fire and then flooded, uh-huh. unfortunately not in quick enough succession for one to help the other. <laughs> if that had, if that had happened, like that would have been really unfortunate, but because it happened after seeing a curse that said pretty mm-hmm. specifically that those things would happen. Yeah. It makes it so much more eerie. I agree. I, I think that there could very well be a real curse because guess what? You're talking about intention. These mm-hmm. people that wrote these curses didn't necessarily do it to keep people out. They didn't necessarily do it as a warning. You know, they wrote it and believed that it would happen. So they put all that intent into it and believed that these things were going to happen. And, you know, like you like to say, with intent, anything's possible. That's true. And if there are thousands of people working on it, Mm -hmm. I mean, if we assume, because when I was a kid, they said it was slaves that built the pyramids, right? Right. And I know not all tombs are pyramids. A lot of the tombs are a lot more simple. Mm-hmm. But more recent theories have said that like these people would have had to have been stronger. Mm-hmm. They would have had to have been pretty intelligent and pretty well organized. So they're more likely to have been workers who would have lived in nearby camps. Mm-hmm. So if, if you're working there and you care about what you're doing, then you have intention from a couple hundred to tens of thousands of workers also going into these curses. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, there's some power to that, I think. I agree. I mean, now if these people, you know, got on a riverboat and it capsized and they were killed by crocs and hippos or, you know, on land they were killed by a cobra or, you know, a scorpion sting or something like that, then I think people would be like, oh, yeah, yeah, it's probably real. Yep. Yep, it's a real mm-hmm. one, but there's a they're very uh, open ended and open to interpretation. So I'm going with the curse is real, and you know, just because you write a curse on something, it doesn't mean that it's going to necessarily affect every single person that sees that. We're seeing that these people that were kind of in charge, these people that were facilitating this stuff, those were the ones that kind of fell victim to the curse. And that kind of goes back to, yeah, well, you know, maybe this intent was put out because these people that were coming to say they pull out a 400 pound statue and they need need six people to carry it on a platform, you know, with some poles like they used to you know, carry the uh, royalty around in Egypt. Um, Those people, maybe they wouldn't have been there without the people that were affected by the curse. If, you know, Howard Carter and Lord Carnarvon had never existed, they, I mean, at least these particular people wouldn't be there at all. So, you know what I mean? It's kind of like you you go for the person in charge, right? Like it's not mm-hmm. it's not the uh, hourly uh, stalker 
that gets fired when a store starts doing bad. It's the store manager. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Like there's, they, it said at the, you know, we talked at the beginning that the, the curses don't distinguish between thieves and archaeologists, but they do seem to distinguish between the people making the, the choice mm-hmm. to violate sort of the sanctity of these tombs and the people who are just there along for the ride. Yeah. Kind of like when, uh, yeah, I mean, you can think about it like, I mean, you've given a bunch of good examples, but the things that I think of are like when there would almost be a fight in my bar. Mm-hmm. Like there was one time in particular, it was two or three guys and then one of our regulars and there was just a misunderstanding. Mm-hmm. But it's like, I know I just have to stop this guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the two guys are just there with him. They're not really interested in being in a fight, mm-hmm. but they're just with this guy. So if we can, you know, you got to focus on the one, like you said, that's in charge neutralize you know if it, if it wasn't for this one there wouldn't be a problem here so all yeah. i gotta do is calm this dude down right and that i mean if the curse was really intent on keeping people out it's like okay this is the guy bringing people in or these yeah. are the people bringing people in we need to get rid of them or this woman wanted to come in here look at the paintings or whatever like she's got to go yeah kind of like most americans are good people but the people in charge are fucking shit dogs so yeah let's get rid of them and the people are all good so well i i honestly think that most uh, this is just a side note probably not even relevant but i really been thinking about it and i think a lot of people have this um attitude of like it doesn't matter if i do something wrong Mm -hmm. you know like oh what does it matter if i run this light it's not a huge deal it's just one thing but it ends up being that so many people view the world that way. Like, well, if I just do it, it's not a big problem. Like everybody else falls. Mm-hmm. It's, it'll be okay. Yeah. Like once you get into politics and things like that, you have hundreds of people going like, well, if I just take this little bribe and if I just push for this thing that I don't necessarily believe in, yeah. it's not a big deal. But when the lobbyists have already bribed everybody else, mm. you know, or I don't know. There, there are so many, <sighs> there are some people that I think are genuinely evil. Mm-hmm. Like truly evil, yeah. But you know the the saying is uh, never attribute to malice what is adequately explained by stupidity. <laughs> That's a great quote. Yeah, it's like most of these people are probably just too dumb to know any better. <laughs> to know that you know cumulatively their actions are creating a lot of harm. Right. Exactly. Um, it's no big deal if I just throw my plastic bottle out the window on the road until everybody thinks that and I'm stepping over 150 of them, you know, trying to walk my dog. And yeah, it's like, well, you know, it doesn't matter if I don't recycle because I'm just one person. And it's like, no, it does. It does matter. Yeah. In any case, yeah, I guess that's all we've got. You want to tell them what they need to know? Yeah, as always, check us out on social media. Send us emails at cryptiquepodcast at gmail.com and tell us how badly we mispronounce these names and how much you do or don't like the, the name King Tut. Um, what else? Check out what we're selling at cryptiquepodcaststore.com and uh, buy us a coffee if you want to. The link will be in the show notes. 
and it would really help us keep the lights on, keep paying for our server space and all that kind of thing and keep bringing you these shows every week. And keep bringing the energy that coffee provides. It's, it's high energy that I'm exuding right now. And yeah, we'll have all the social media links in the uh, show notes. You guys know that. I guess that's all we've got for you tonight on Cryptique. And remember, avoid curses by cultivating kindness, embracing empathy, and spreading positivity. The energy you put out in the world determines the energy that comes back to you. Good evening, Crypt Keepers. <laughs>